Chapter 12 of A Bunch of Everlastings, or Text That Made History, by Frank W. Borum. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tim Bauer. Chapter 12 William Cooper's Text Have a good look at him, this shy, shuddering, frail little fellow of six, for rough hands are waiting to hustle him onto a coach and to pack him off to a distant boarding school. He is a quivering little bundle of nerves, slight of figure, with pale, pinched face, and eyes swollen with chronic inflammation. He starts at every sound in the daytime, and throws the bedclothes over his head at night, that he may not be scared to death by the ghostly shadows that flit across the wall. His mother, his sole source of comfort, has just died. That is why he is being sent away from home. The memory of her was ever afterwards the one star that illumined his dark sky. Late in his life, a picture of her was presented to him, and his ecstasy knew no bounds. The world, he wrote to the giver, could not have furnished you with a present so acceptable to me as the picture which you have so kindly sent me. I received it the night before last, and received it with a trepidation of nerves and spirit somewhat akin to what I should have felt had its dear original presented herself to my embrace. I kissed it and hung it where it is the last object which I see at night and the first on which i open my eyes in the morning her memory is to me dear beyond expression and then turning to the picture itself he breaks into poetry oh that those lips had language life has passed with me but roughly since i heard thee last those lips are thine thine own sweet smile i see the same that oft in childhood solaced me my mother when i heard that thou wast dead say wast thou conscious of the tears i shed Perhaps thou gavest me, though unfelt, a kiss, Perhaps a tear, if souls can weep in bliss. I heard the bell tolled on thy burial day, I saw the hearse that bore thee slowly away. Thy maidens grieved themselves at my concern, Oft gave me promise of thy quick return. Thus many a sad to-morrow came and went, Till all my stock of infant sorrow spent. I learned at last submission to my lot, but though I less deplore thee, ne'er forgot. So his mother dies and leaves him a queer, unwelcomed heritage to his father, and his father, utterly bewildered by the boy's odd fancies and erratic ways, has resolved to get out of the difficulty by banishing him to a boarding school. At the boarding school he is badgered and bullied and beaten without respite and without mercy, and to the last day of his life he never thinks of the horror place without a shudder. Have a good look at him, I say, before they bundle him into the cavernous interior of the old coach. For in spite of everything, this little parcel of timid, quivering sensibility is going to make history. It frequently happens that, when a man drops into his grave, his fame gradually subsides until his memory entirely perishes. With Cooper, a diametrically opposite principle has been at work. More than a century has elapsed since he quitted the scene of his labors and during that period the luster of his fame has steadily grown. Time was when it was the fashion to pooh-pooh the claims of Cooper. Did he not, it was asked contemptuously, did he not on several occasions attempt suicide and spend much of his time in a madhouse? This, of course, is indisputable, but it is also true that almost any young fellow of nervous temperament and frail constitution would lose his reason and seek some violent means of escape from the horrors of life if his malady were treated as it was customary to treat such cases a century and a half ago. 
the marvel is that from so frail a personality so pitilessly treated we have inherited poetry that will be cherished as long as the language lasts it is the glory of cooper that he stands among our pioneers england had wrapped herself in a gloomy and sullen silence literary genius seemed dead then all at once the country became like a grove at sunrise and the first note heard was the note of william cooper dr arnold in talking to his boys at rugby used to call him the singer of the dawn goldwin smith declares that he is the most important poet between the time of pope and the time of wordsworth in one of his best essays macaulay says that byron contributed more than any other writer even more than sir walter scott to the literary brilliance of that period and he is careful to emphasize the fact that it was cooper that called that fruitful era into being cooper he says was the forerunner of the great restoration of our literature and a little further on he declares that during the twenty years which followed the death of cooper the revolution of english poetry was fully consummated so there he stands holding and holding for all time a place peculiarly his own in our british life and letters he is an attractive if somewhat depressing figure a feeble sensitive and high-strung physique a mental wreck a would-be suicide a passionate lover of all forms of animal life the author of some of our quaintest humor and some of our most sacred hymns his life was as byron expressively said a singular pendulum swinging ever between a smile and a tear few poets are more human more simple more unaffected more restful than he few are more easy to read his john gilpin his alexander silkirk his boadicea and my mother's picture were among the first poems we learned in our school books some of his verses will be among the last we shall care to remember perhaps his most forceful and pathetic epitaph was written by mrs browning in words as true as they are sorrowful o poets from a maniac's tongue was poured the deathless singing o christians at your cross of hope a hopeless hand was clinging o men this man in brotherhood your weary paths beguiling groaned inly while he taught you peace and died while you were smiling but it is time that we ask ourselves a question what was it that so distracted this sensitive brain what was it that almost broke his gentle and clinging spirit what was it that again and again drove cooper to attempt his own destruction there is only one answer it was his sin my sin my sin he cries from morning till night and very often from night until morning oh for some fountain open for sin and uncleanness but he can find no such fountain anywhere he is like the old lama in kipling's kim who continually searched for the river the river of the arrow the river that can cleanse from sin but like the lama he can nowhere find those purifying waters and because his frenzied quest is so fruitless and so hopeless he seeks relief in a premature death but every rash attempt fails and failing adds to his consternation for he feels that in attempting suicide he committed the unpardonable sin and his plight is a thousand times worse than it was before he has been told of the fountain but he can never find it he has been told of the lamb of god that taketh away the sin of the world but he knows not how to approach him he longs for a light to shine upon the road that leads us to the lamb but the darkness only grows more dense then when the blackness of night seemed impenetrable day suddenly breaks cooper is a patient at dr cotton's private lunatic asylum 
In those days, such asylums usually broke the bruised reed and quenched the smoking flax. But, happily for Cooper and the world, Dr. Cotton's is the exception. Dr. Cotton is himself a kindly, gracious, and devout old man, and he treats his poor patient with sympathy and understanding. And, under this treatment, the change comes. Cooper rises one morning feeling better. He grows cheerfully over his breakfast, takes up the Bible, which, in his fit of madness, he always threw aside, and, opening it at random, lights upon a passage that breaks upon him like a burst of glorious sunshine. Let him tell the story. The happy period which was to shake off my fetters and afford me a clear opening of the free mercy of God in Christ Jesus was now arrived. I flung myself into a chair near the window, and, seeing a Bible there, ventured once more to apply it for comfort and instruction. The first verses I saw were in the third of Romans, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to manifest His righteousness. Immediately I received strength to believe, and the full beams of the sun of righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon in his blood, and the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment I believed and received the gospel. Side by side with this illuminating experience of Cooper's, let me set a striking similar experience which befell John Bunyan exactly a hundred years before. To the soul of Bunyan, the self-same text brought the self-same deliverance. Now, he says, my soul was clogged with guilt and was greatly pinched between those two considerations. Live, I must not. Die, I dare not. Now I sunk and fell in my spirit, and giving up all for lost, but as I was walking up and down in the house, as a man, in a most woeful state, that word of God took hold of my heart. Ye are justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth as a propitiation through faith in his blood to manifest his righteousness. Oh, what a turn it made upon me! I was as one awakened out of some troublesome dream. What a turn it made upon me, says John Bunyan in 1656. What a turn it made upon me, says William Cooper in 1756. For the argument of that great text is irresistible. If the love of God be so great as to provide such a Savior, how could he be eager for the condemnation of the guiltiest? For the grace of God be so freely outpoured in justifying energy, how could any man be beyond the pale of hope? And if God is so anxious for the salvation of men that he has set forth, underlined, emphasized, explained, made perfectly prominent his propitiation, why should even the most timorous of mortals draw back in terror? For Cooper, from that moment, the whole world was changed. Huntington Dawn, says one of his biographers, seemed a paradise. The heart of its new inhabitant was full of unspeakable happiness that comes with calm after the storm, with health after the most terrible of maladies, with repose after the burning fever of the brain. When first he went to church, he was in spiritual ecstasy. It was with difficulty that he restrained his emotions. Though his voice was silent, being stopped by the intensity of his feelings, his heart within him sang for joy, and when the gospel for the day was read, the sound of it was more than he could bear. This brightness of his mind communicated itself for all the objects around him, to the sluggish water of the ooze, to dull Finney Huntington and its commonplace inhabitants. What a turn it made upon me, says Bunyan in 1656.
what a turn it made upon me says cooper in seventeen fifty six and again he breaks into poetry i was a stricken deer that left the herd long since with many a arrow deeply infixed my panting side was charged when i withdrew to seek a tranquil death in distant shades there was i found by one who had himself been hurt by the archers in his side he bore and in his hands and feet the cruel scars with gentle force soliciting the darts he drew them forth and healed and bade me live the long-sought fountain is found the light has shone upon the road that leads him to the lamb End of chapter twelve